The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Making it. All right. Yeah. Click. Yeah. And I love how Ben just like has live. no problem like okay. Ben has no problem what? It is Wednesday, January twenty seventh, five oh four p.m. January? Eastern. Oh my god, it is Wednesday, October twenty seventh. Wow, what is wrong with me? Uh, it feels like January outside. It's gray. It it's very it's gray. gray. I actually, I am like kind of sitting in the dark besides for like my light and my thing. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Thanks for the so, cover, Scott. Um, I was, I was, I was just, uh, I was trying to get at what I was going to say about Ben, but we're live now. So go ahead, Ben. Yeah, it is 5.04 p.m. Uh, uh, Marsha Blackburn attacked Susan Hennessy today in a uh, hearing, uh, asking Merrick Garland whether he was gonna protect the Durham investigation from her. Uh, somebody needs to inform Senator Blackburn that um, uh, the National Security Division where Susan works has no interactions with the Durham investigation. Um, uh, why did- why A did new they... wolf shirt has arrived. It's so much less um, nipply. It is less I, we, it's, it's, it's unbelievably less nipply. Yes. It's got, um, like, I mean, it's almost like it puts Unless there's something really weird going on with your nipples, it's less nipply. Yeah. yeah. All right. I so would just say, I, I just say just that like, nipples are less nipply than that other shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. I, I think maybe yeah. we're going to quote. It, I think Virginia Heffernan would agree with that line. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We are not allowed to have fun anymore. And uh, our guest has been uh, uh, slightly delayed, but will be joining us shortly. In the meantime, um, Scott is going to tell the story of uh, his terrible nose injury. Oh. He can tell the true version, a false version. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is not. Oh. Oh, uh, okay. But, but I, I, blew, I, blew, I, I could have done where's the lie on this. Um, uh, Had you given him I, more than three seconds notice. You're right. Yeah, I could. I, I could. I, okay. By the way, we have scheduled Shane Harris to play Where's the Lie. Oh, good. Um, oh. Uh, which is an exciting development. Yeah. I, I've also, I've also, I, I just, I know that's not nearly... Oh, you're, Harris, you're, you but, are now prepared to do a Where's the Lie? Yes, I am. Which I have, day next I have, week are you doing it? I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't do Mondays or Tuesdays, but I, Wednesday, Thursday, Wednesdays work for me. Well, let's do um, next Wednesday. Okay. Actually, wow. it's a fact I can't. Um, <laughs> Wait, um, really? Was that uh, part of Where's the Lie? Are you like teasing us? <laughs> 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 the lie is Scott will never actually schedule it. Like, is that, like, oh, that would have been, that really would have been meta. Yeah. That would have got like so high concept. 
<laughs> okay, no, no, but I do, I do have one, and I will tell you, and I will schedule it. Actually, We're going to actually poll the audience on whether you're lying right now. Um, <laughs> uh, the poll is up, folks. So, Scott, uh, where have you been? We haven't, you know, we haven't seen you. You never call. You never write. <laughs> so, so it turns out that a. I didn't realize this, but I do have a job. <laughs> so, <laughs> like the last year and a half really kind of obscured whether I was employed or not. Um, but it turns out that I, I, I am employed. That's number one. And number two is that 5 p.m. turns out to be like business hours. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I can't be like, I'm sorry, I can't meet with you to talk about your paper. I have to hang out with my friends on Crowdcast. No, this doesn't. This doesn't, this doesn't. Maybe we should. I'm sorry. Have, like, I'm sorry, you can't get tenure yet. We have to. Maybe, have maybe to. we should have uh, like Scott in lieu of fun Scott's office hours edition. Where we just, <laughs> you know, like, you have office hours with students and we do. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Come on, come on in. Let's talk about your paper. Okay. Ben and I in 85, 107. Oh, yeah. We're just sitting there like. <laughs> yeah. Every chorus can make fun of your Don't worry. students. Don't worry. We posted a link to your draft in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it says that's do totally not cool. distribute at the top. That's like totally <laughs> right, right, like, Do not quote or distribute. <laughs> okay. But really keep but this within quote. the whole Yeah, keep this in within the Crowdcast YouTube family. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just um, want to point out that there is a pretty even split about whether you are lying about doing in uh where's the lie. I do like if there was going to be like a long con of whereas the lie, it would be Scott who does, did it. Like, I feel like that would be the right, would be on brand, heavily on brand. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I have a where's the lie. Okay. What? Okay. Wait, were you laughing because you're lying? <laughs> See, that's the thing. I yeah! laughed because I thought, no. I laughed because I thought how ambiguous that statement was. Um, uh, for those who are asking about Professor Blue, she will be with us. Uh, she uh, texted me and said she was going to be about 10 minutes late, uh, uh, having been, uh, oh, there she is, in fact. Um, so let's uh, bring her on screen and then we can dispense with this witty banter and uh, engage. I was also just gonna stuff. say that, like, I I really like I had this talk with Genevieve yesterday, but we decided to like wait until you Ben, like you guys, we could all talk about it together. Which maybe if we ever have like collective family cheese night again, will happen. But hi, <laughs> hi, hello, Kathleen. You have hi. a new plant. Uh, yeah, I have a Target special over here. Don't tell Room Reader. It's fake. Um, it's oh fake. God. That's awesome. the first thing I'm going to tell roommate. Are you kidding me? Like now I like don't like I'm going to scoop this. Like and is the is the cat <laughs> is the cactus is the cactus fake? Yeah, everything out here is faux. I'm sorry, this room is uninsulated, so in Chicago, uh, the winter is not kind to this room. 
Um, I want to know why it is Wait, that you what? like. I like that you say faux instead of fake because it just makes you one sound fancier, and then two. Like, I can't tell if you're talking about like the plants are trying to kill you because they're your enemy. Oh so, yeah. Like, like, or Vietnamese like, are they soup. Faux? Like oh. they're faux. They're against me. Like, oh, this is a whole, I, a whole I, situation. I understand. I was thinking that you were saying <laughs> that your your faux plants were insulating you from the cold. No. You were saying, right, I, I was mixing cause and effect. I, the, I had all it's so cold, you can only have faux plants. Yes, they were all real out here. And then last winter, they were all crying out for help and to be moved inside. Yeah. We, have a, we have a poll up about what uh, Kathleen means by her plants being faux. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you all can, can vote as you see fit. Um, um, I'm going to have to. That's very funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can mean uh, just uh, her room is office is filled with Vietnamese soup. Yes. <laughs> that would be fun. Or enemies. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Kathleen, uh, since we last talked, you seem to have produced a new book. Yes, it is a uh, edited collection. I wish I could hold it up for you, but I actually don't have my physical copy yet, which is very frustrating. Um, I would like to hold it and you touch could it. Find, you could just get a printout and then stick it on another book, and then it would be a faux Oh, very good, Kate Blanick. So, as I love that. I love that. <laughs> I love yeah. it. So, it is called A Field Guide to White Supremacy. It's an edited collection that I worked on with my colleague um, and friend Ramon Gutierrez. Um, and it's sort of a compendium of a whole bunch of essays written by people who are at the forefront of their fields dealing with some element of white supremacy and the many problems it causes. Um, so my con contribution is about the white power movement, but there are pieces on anti-immigration, long histories of legal exclusion of different kinds of ethnic groups. There are pieces on anti-Asian violence, anti-Semitism. Um, there are pieces on uh, anti-trans and gendered um, violence and how it works to uphold systems of patriarchal white supremacy. Um, and it starts with a big section. What I can hold up is um, it starts up with a big set of recommendations for the Associated Press Manual, which is this thing, um, which is in every newsroom guiding how we tell stories about all of these things. Um, and at some point in publicity from my first book, I picked it up and noticed that it has big, long sections on Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and even a long section on the Irish Republican Army, which I think we have not been talking about regularly for a while, um, or at least not in the, the news that I consume, and um, nothing really on the Klan, on neo-Nazis, on skinheads, on militias, and hardly anything, and what they had was not quite right on the alt-right, which is not really how we should be thinking about this anyway. Um, so we started with some recommendations for the style guide and, and then went from there to the essays. So what makes it a field guide? So field guide, we mean to identify and get specialized knowledge about how one broad category of something is working. Um, so I think part of what we're trying to do um, for mainstream readers is help people understand how parts of white supremacist systems 
are still producing racial inequality, even if nobody in that room is individually racist. So we might think, for instance, um, I'm using the metaphor of a wooden fence. So the fence was built by people who would identify as white supremacist in, in their historical context. And one plank of the fence is my first book, Bring the War Home, which is about racial violence. But other planks in this fence are things like um, racially differential outcomes in maternal health and the way we incarcerate far more people of color than white people, um, the way our legal system works around race, the way that our education system or property ownership or um, wealth acquisition, all of these things have disparate outcomes. And a lot of the time it's not because of individual racist belief, it's because of long histories and built-in systems. So the guide is about identifying how all of these things work together. So one other question for me, and then um, when you say white supremacy, um, are you using it as a synonym for racism? Um, and so in your vocabulary and terminology, how should we understand the different, like what what is the taxonomy white supremacy racism, structural racism, yeah. any of the following as ideology versus as outcome descriptor. So I think white supremacy in this book, we are using to refer to both individual and structural racism. The whole system is white supremacy. And then inside of that, there are buckets for structural racism, individual racism. And then inside individual racism is overt racist belief that is interested in violent action. And that's where most of my work is located. Yeah, but so anti-trans violence yeah. doesn't seem like it, it so just to, to, doesn't seem like white supremacy. Yeah. It, so what we're looking at in the section on gender violence, which includes um, writings by Roderick Ferguson on the Pulse nightclub shooting, um, a piece by Rebecca Solnit on um, violence against women, um, and a piece by Corey Safin on anti-trans violence. What we're looking at is the way that gender relationships and the positionality of women has worked to uphold this whole system. Um, so there were following exciting history from people like Stephanie Jones Rogers, who have found that white women have played a really important role in not only upholding the ideology of white supremacy, but in its violent enforcement in day-to-day -day life. So we're looking at those intersections. Um, and part of the reason that that's in there is that this whole book came together because in the academy, we rarely talk to each other about these issues um, as sort of defined through the study of racial violence. So people in law schools who look at exclusion are hardly in conversation as much as we might be um, with people in history departments who work on, um, say, anti-immigrant violence today or things like that. not excited about this conversation. Right, you can uh, have it, a dog uh, in. We love dogs. We, we're, you're, we're very dog friendly, a real dog friendly and faux dog friendly. But I, I can imagine several different relationships between white supremacy and, let's say, anti-Semitism. One can be that anti- how can you talk about like such bad things in the world when there's such good things in the world? Uh, that's how. Yeah. That's how um, yeah. I, I feel like I'm talking about anti-Semitism and, and white supremacy and then 
like pan to like the, the sweetest face in the world. <laughs> yeah, no, no, sorry. I'm so, well, because I need the sweet face to make it all possible. I'm right. sorry. So what was your question? I lose, lose track. No, so you can imagine like grouping anti-Semitism with white supremacy because you can see that one reason why you might be an anti-Semite is that you believe that white Christian Nord, whatever, a superior or have a had a greater claim, but you also might think that actually one's one may not generate the other, but they're mutually constituting. Mm -hmm. That is, um, that is the kind of anti-Semitism is a kind of a force which also supports uh, kind of white supremacy and vice versa. So it, would that be would that be fair? Yeah. And I think um, the connection there with gender is that, you know, if we if we follow this all the way to the extremist space in the white power movement, um, women's normal or normative gender roles for women is kind of one of the main organizing instruments um, and women's martyrdom, as we're seeing again with the Ashley Babbitt story coming out of January 6th, is one of the main sort of calls to action. Um, so women's reproduction is really important to all of these ideologies um in different ways as well can can we can i ask so one of will codrington was on last week i think yeah last week um talking about his new book the people's constitution that kind of talks about um well a bunch of stuff about voting rights and things like that but one of the things that we kind of got taught wrapped up in was like social movements and how in the early 1900s like a lot of social movements moved from black men voting to bootstrap women voting to bootstrap like yeah like, uh, like lesbian rights and like other types of rights right like that is like the hierarchy happens again in the 60s with like the civil rights movement and then like and other things and like one of the things that i'm kind of hearing what you're saying if you're if this is correct about the kind of the trans rights is that like um is that like one of the things that I remember most about second wave feminism is was its dismissal entirely of like queer culture and like the purple menace and like uh, everything around that. And so like, is there an idea that like they derive their power from these types of like from their kind of from their preciousness as white women? Like they're kind of um, I forget actually what's the what's the um, woman in To Kill a Mockingbird who- Gout, maybe, or no, the other lady. Like, like, or like something, like, like it starts with an E. Cunningham. No, that's definitely not. I I just, just remember her last name is Cunningham. No. I don't remember to her To Kill a Mockingbird? Name. But, yeah, aren't all the bad guys in, 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 in To Kill a Mockingbird, they're, it's like a giant clan of I'm waiting for the Cunningham. comment section to answer. Yeah, I am too. This is like, this is what I depend <laughs> on them on because apparently I don't um, have like a memory, um, uh, a memory for anything anymore. But no, her first name sort of like uh, Yule. Her last name was Yule. That's what it was. Um, oh, sorry, Yule. Yeah, not 
how the hell do you say like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I said Cunningham, but I meant you. Like, what you the, know, it's been like, like 30 years since I've read it. Like, how are those even like marginally the same in any universe? I'm gonna let that go. Anyway, there's a family of Cunninghams somewhere in that in that novel. No, there isn't. Like, they're definitely... yeah, there is. One of them was on the jury. Oh my. Okay. Mayella Violet Ewell. Violet you yes, yes, yes. But anyways, but this is kind of the idea is that like there is this preciousness and this like this kind of like this political power that coalesces around like a wronged white woman. And then yeah. it is built on basically this idea of kind of an underlying idea of white supremacy that like provides justification for and like that person, as was the case with what's her face. Uh, Beth Yule. (laughs) But no, but the whole point of this is that like, if you remember this story, she had actually seduced this black man and like gotten him to like, and then had been so embarrassed when he rebuffed her that he like, that she accused him of this rape and that he was put on trial for all of this. And that was like this entire craziness. But like the whole point was that she actually wasn't necessarily white supremacist herself like in her individual actions it was that like her like her like her creation of this moment like whipped in whipped like white supremacy into kind of into order to like target this individual and that's kind of i guess like what i'm thinking about sorry yeah no no i'm like being super articulate today drawing on my vast literary i just want to say that there are grade. as as the chat is now reflecting there is in fact a family of cunninghams in to kill a mockingbird um, tom robinson and so i am not like i i had the wrong name but it was not a complete fantasy all i remember okay. is shiffer robe i don't know why i can remember shiffer robe and not like, like anyway um, any of the other names, but anyways, go ahead, Scott. <laughs> I just will say I've never read or seen the movie. Really? really? Yep. I am. It's actually. I, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I don't want to get off track because we're talking about the book, but that's like crazy. So, yeah. I have a yeah, question. Like, I, I, I want to ask about the intersectional quality of the book. So, um, pre- like I, I totally accept that there is, you know, that with respect to all kinds of other systems of power, gender, gender identity, anti-Semitism, etc., there is a very close relationship with white supremacy. But it seems to me they exist also on separate axes, which is to say non-white supremacist uh, uh, groups are perfectly capable of being, you know, violently sexist. Oh, or, sure. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. yeah. I, I guess my question is, what is the claim that the relationship is? Is, is it... It's presumably not that it's simply a derivative relationship of white supremacy. What's what's the nature of the claim? Well, so I think that, and I want to not overstate here because the claim in titling and the claim in bringing these things together is also a way of just sort of, you know, working backward from the problem of racial inequality and racist violence 
to where is the scholarship that can help us understand those things. Um, you know, we went through other possible titles like Field Guide to the History of Hate was one of the possible titles. Um, but then it's not all hate, right? A lot of it is sort of uh, carried out for a whole bunch of other reasons. So I think um, the relationship is, I mean, intersectional. It's about how different kinds of inequality shore up each other. And I think in terms of thinking about the relation to gender, it's about how primal or how primary the maybe both also primal um but how central the problem of white reproduction has come to be not only to the fringe but also to the mainstream so i think some of the discomfort people were expressing after the last round of census results is a good example of this um and people on the left usually think of these as soft demographic transformations when you think about like america's becoming more multiracial the percentage of non-Hispanic whites is down, things like that. Um, people in the white power movement hear that as apocalyptic emergency. And I think even people in the mainstream right are beginning to hear that as like a call to intensify um, things like voter disenfranchisement and anti-immigration pushes, et cetera. That's all about reproduction. So that's all about at the end of the day, white women and the behavior of white women. It's um, so interesting you, know, from, you, men it's so you, interesting you mentioned this. I've just been yeah. been reading a lot about uh, uh, for reasons related to uh, uh, this podcast I've been doing on the French Village. Um, uh, I've been reading a lot about France in the 30s and the obsession with uh, what they called French but by which they meant white French, because yeah. uh, it sure didn't include Senegalese, um, for, you know, replacement. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and just how wrapped up it was with nationalism. And, you know, they'd lost X number of million people in World War I, but they were, you know, pathologically obsessed with, uh, with, with reproduction in a way that uh, has a lot of resonance with what you're saying now. Yeah, and I think it's, um, we know from the history of how white supremacy has worked in the United States that the the link with regulating sexual behavior and white supremacy has really been about regulating women because, for instance, um, in slavery or um, in many other systems, um, a man's breaking of the color line could be profitable. It could be part of systemic terror against communities. There were very few consequences in many cases, but for white women to break that line was tantamount to racial annihilation. And so we know that that is sexual. Sort of it's always sexual. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, yeah, go ahead. I don't have anything else. I was just like, I was just building. Go ahead, Scott. Uh, so, um, can I, you, you said something that sounds so interesting before, and I was hoping you could talk a bit more about it, which was that you didn't want to call a field guide to hate. That is, you wanted to, to uh, and so can you talk about that? Because that there's something that, that really that really resonated, that, that really feels like you're picking up on something important. I was hoping you could talk about it. Well, I think a lot of these systems are in place in our society in ways that we don't even realize. So I like this fence metaphor, forgive me for using a metaphor over and over again, but because- um, Just as long as you mix them. 
we hate consistent metaphors here stir the fence with a spoon okay, yeah, I, I could paint it with something maybe so if you go <laughs> the, fence, the fence is there impeding something and it's not enough to just not be racist it's not enough to just walk away from the fence right the fence is still standing up um, so I think part of what we're trying to get at is that this is not just about um, any one of these things, but this is about the aggregation of inequality. I see. So it's not like it. So this is not just about, first of all, individuals and their mental states on the one hand, but it's also not about hot like emotions like hate. It's about well, structural barriers. Yeah, I mean, some of it is about hot emotions like hate. Like my essay is about that because um, uh -huh. that's where my research is. Um, but I think like it's it's trying to start thinking about how do we bridge our opposition with something very overt and clearly bad, like the white power movement, um, and our opposition of other more subtle forms of white supremacy that are also harming people. Right. So. I have a question for your field guide then. Yes. So let's put it to the test with something in the wild. A friend of mine who is black, her parents are both from Ghana, and she has been wildly successful and works at a major company, and she and her husband are both of color, and they have young kids, and they live in Manhattan, and they are basically... Um, trying to get their kid into Dalton. I'll just like name the school. Cause trying to get their out. kid into where? Dalton, like, okay. the, like the, the elite kind of like, yeah, yeah. like private school in New York. And their kid is like five. I don't know what age it is that you have to start doing this stuff, but something like that. But like, there's um, a test. There's like a bunch of questions in an interview to like with the parents. And part of the test was showing them two pieces of artwork in the Western canon of art that was like purely Western, like by white artists, like what, and like they had to identify the art, identify the artist and say why it was important. Um, what? Yes. Scott's like, for fuck, Scott is like, sounds just like Dalton. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I have. I that sounds totally but reasonable I, I, to me. I, I, a five-year-old without wait, a without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-without-
that isn't like racist. That is white supremacist. Yeah. And like, and I was like, that seems to me the definition of kind of structural white supremacy um, in this very like, like in this type of way that we don't typically talk about it. It's not someone in a hood, obviously, or not someone no. like espousing like, oh, you have to have blonde hair and blue eyes. But it is like our culture is the superior culture in which you have to have like become imbued with knowledge yeah, in order to pass this test. And it's also holding up a sort of like, I mean, and we, we see that move in a lot of places where it is more overt, right? And I'm not painting these two things with the same brush, but I am going to just notice that the Proud Boys will say that they're not white supremacists. They're just Western chauvinists. They just want to defend the fact that Western culture is superior um, and that they think Western culture has something to offer that no one else in the world ever could and that that's what they believe, right? So that's like the mainstream, more acceptable version that they have been trying out in order to not get labeled as I'm not I'm not an outlaw I'm a cowboy or like I'm not an outlaw I'm John Wayne like what is or, this like no. rebranding <laughs> like I mean, but they've been the, this is not new either I mean David Duke used to say I'm not racist I'm racialist I'm not segregationist I'm just separatist right so like the language around this switches as fast as people realize sort of what it is and and they're always calibrating about how far you can push but back to the Dalton example I think that like that's just one really good example of how testing is often a site of inherent bias, right? Um, this is true in SAT testing too. And this is true in, um, there was just something on um, NPR last week in Chicago about um, how the, the biggest educational slips have been in communities of color during the COVID epidemic and biggest, um, people, the biggest group to gain from going test optional, surprise, surprise, turns out not to be communities of color, but white kids who have tons of extracurricular activities. Because even if you take out the SAT, the whole admissions test, uh, admissions process to colleges has to do with all of these other markers that have to do with affluence and privilege and where you go to school, right? So this is what I mean. It's all, um, it's ingrained very, very deeply. So the field guide is not claiming to be exhaustive, but we're just trying to collate a bunch of interesting, good scholarly thinking about these issues. Um, and then from the footnotes of the pieces, from Googling the people in the book, people can sort of use this as a jumping off point to, to learn more. So I want to ask you about the that uh, point that you just made. Um, uh, I, wow, I had just completely lost my train of thought. Um, and did you start your sentence and hope that by the time you got to the end of that class, I definitely like, I was like, like that you would have like you know, it would have like I, sprung to mind again. no 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 I, was, I started my sentence knowing where it was going lost the thread about a few words into the sentence and then was hoping it would come back to me um by the time I finished the sentence and it just didn't so I'm totally copping to this right now um okay. and right, uh and the dog in again yeah, sorry. Right. You just have to like, come in and out, and in and out. It's so demanding. Wait, is that like? I feel like everything's splitting apart. The the center cannot hold. Yeah, um, mere anarchy like... is loose to pay the lower <laughs> Richard Wattenbarger, the floor is yours. Okay, um, I'll take the floor. Um, so, uh, oh. oh my God, guys, it wasn't no, my dog. Okay. It wasn't I my dog it. for once. Um, 
So I, my question is, how much recognition are you and the other contributors to your book giving to the situation that uh, meanings of the phrase white supremacy in the, in the way that you're using it uh, were not really current among a wider public until probably around the 2016 election? Um, and I think a lot of people hear the phrase a lot outside of academe, um, hear the phrase and they think um, white supremacy, that's the guy across the town who puts on a white hood and burns crosses. And so my, my question is, what thoughts do you have about surmounting this terminological problem? And I'll just add that I personally, I am all in favor of this more expansive use of the, of the phrase. Sure. So, I, I mean, I think that um... So I think we're just coming from the place of how people in the academy tend to use that phrase as they're jumping off. Um, it's imperfect, I, I grant you. Um, I think that, you know, I've, I don't know, I've, I've been on this show before talking about language and my frustrations with different terminology around white nationalism, around the white power movement. Um, and I'm always just looking for precision, I suppose. Um, but I think calling it white supremacy is important because I think it designates all of it as a problem that we need to face. Um, instead of something, I don't know, perhaps it should be called the field guide to inequality. But also this is a collective work. So the title is of course a collective decision as well. So, yeah. I, David I, mean, I like white, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that I really, I like, I like the title quite a bit. And I actually think that, I think that like, I think that white nationalism, to my mind, is more about like a is more like geographically bound around yeah. like patriotism and a government angle, whereas so, like white supremacy is more encompassing and yeah. also gets at like ideas of privileging like certain types of structure, as we just talked about, on top of like kind of more like in more uh, like more subtle action like that kind of like embedded architecture choices to yeah. like all the way up to like marches yeah like, i think that's right transmen. yeah so i well, think it's great that's what we were trying to do so i think that's right then yeah well david botts is flitting around like the social butterfly that he is and unlike the rest of you members of the greek chorus he's found ways of manipulating his own presence on the screen. So all this stuff that's been going on, I've had nothing to do with any of it. Really? Uh, meanwhile, no, I'm not doing this. Look, my hands are up here. Um, and David is just making himself appear and disappear and be audible and not. And um, see, like, I don't have anything to do with this. David, I the floor just, like, is yours. It feel, it's very, it's very tricky. Can you hear me? Yeah. Nice to see you, David. Um, oh, there I am. Uh, really sorry about that. I, my computer is fighting me today. Um, Professor Ballou, thank you so much for coming. Um, I, I look forward to getting your book nearly as much as you do, but can you talk a little, <laughs> bit, uh, a little bit about the trope of defending the virtue of a white woman and, and your thoughts? We know how that looked in the past. See also Emmett Till, but I, what does that look like today? I mean, what is a, what is a today example of that situation? Sure. Well, I mean, Gabrielle Ashley Petito. Babbitt is a huge one. Um, so Ashley Babbitt is the January 6th protester who was killed when she was trying to enter um, a inner chamber in the Capitol building and someone shot her through the plate glass window. 
Um, and immediately white power groups and militia groups tried to make a big martyrdom campaign around Ashley Babbitt. And we're just seeing it pick up now um, in more mainstream channels. But I mean, um, there was a great op-ed in the New York Times right after January 6th about this by Sayward Darby, who's um, studied white power women in the current movement. Um, and it's one of the sort of tried and true ways that they've been able to fan recruitment. Um, Vicki Weaver is another recent example who was killed in the Ruby Ridge standoff in 1992. Um, and these things come up every once in a while. I mean, like I even remember thinking about this during the Trayvon Martin case um, where the testimony that was supposed to show that he was dangerous or lurking was from a white woman taking the stand and talking about her young children, her role as a mother, her feelings of being endangered in her neighborhood. Um, so those kinds of things, those are, you know, those are narrative tropes that attach to long histories of description um, and that activate, I think, in many cases, even subconsciously for people around these stories. So can I ask a question like around this, like kind of that you're like making me think about this, like yeah. Ben mentioned the Gabby Batito story and kind of yeah. the over rotation of the media around like that, like obviously domestic violence kind of trouble. I don't know what else it is, but like, let's just call it domestic violence kind of tragedy and like all of the attention, this missing woman and then dead woman got because she was an attractive white woman. Um, yeah. And it was kind of a salacious story for other reasons. But like what always strikes me about this, in addition to like the inequality and like race, right, is that there is always this moment of like we give zero shits about domestic violence and sexual violence in like 99 out of 100 cases. We don't mm -hmm. properly fund shelters. We don't believe women when they tell us they're being beaten. We blame them for it. And then we have these moments where we have this person and yeah. like all of a sudden there is this kind of like collective amnesia around yeah. like anything that's happened. And I, so not to like, I don't want to make this, I think that this is two things. One, it erases people of color who have been going through the exact same thing, but it also erases people of the exact same color and the wow. exact same situation in a lot of ways that have been going through the same things and no one gives a shit about them until like, it's until a weird van story yeah, like, in a national park or something. And like, yeah. I just don't actually understand that. I mean, yeah. I feel like our entire history, it's all over the place, but I don't get why women have all of this power to testify in the stand against someone and no power to change their situations vis-a-vis -vis government or yeah. like social intervention. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I'm interested to hear what you think about this Rebecca Solnit piece that's in this volume, which is... Um, Ooh, I'm trying to remember which title we went with. Um, one of the working titles was The Longest War. And the argument is that the longest war in human history is the war against women, mostly perpetrated by their intimate partners. Um, and the numbers are just, you know, the numbers are horrifying and staggering. And it comes up every once in a while, and we never really do anything about it. Um, and one of the interesting things about it um, for me is I've been teaching that essay in class as part of the University of Chicago's core. Yes. Got Rebecca Solnit into the University of Chicago mm -hmm. core curriculum. <laughs> public in me, I will say, and the Zapatistas and Ani DeFranco. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things about teaching this essay is that um, it was written after Yes All Women. Do people remember Yes All Women hashtag? 
Kate will, but I think most people probably won't. This was after the um, shooting of college students by an incel in, where was that? University of Santa Barbara, I think. It was um, the San, wasn't it the San Bernardino? San Bernardino. No. Yeah. It's the Elliot Rogers one, if people- Yeah, like, that was San Bernardino. No, it wasn't San Bernardino. You're right, it's Santa Barbara. Yeah, you're right, you're right, right. They're around the same, yeah. Um, so he was a white supremacist who was like an incel and was like, yes. was and like somebody tweeted something like, not all men do things like this. And somebody very correctly said, well, okay, but yes, all women live in fear of something like this happening to them. Um, and it was interesting um, because post Me Too, which is a very different kind of hashtag activism around this, right? Like Me Too is about claiming that you, a visible woman with virtue and a media stand, um, have also experienced this thing. It's about using your credibility to make a stand about the issue. Yes, All Women, which didn't take off and stick, was universalizing, was about all people as a category experiencing something. Um, and it's really it's something that, um, because the Soul Knit piece was written before Me Too, it's something I like to talk about with my students because of how much didn't change because of either of these things, right? Um, so sorry, that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I agree, it's really interesting. The, I mean, not to bring it back to, to Kill a Mockingbird, but there was some discussion earlier in the chat about like why it was like the play was good and blah, blah, which it wasn't. It was a terrible piece of garbage. And I like Jeff Bridges and like it was, I still it's really bad. Um, but no, but the reason that I didn't like it was specifically because if you actually revisit the story of To Kill a Mockingbird, it is a story of uh, that centers around a white, uh, a white kind of defense attorney. Yeah. Uh, male defense attorney defending a black man who is charged with rape of a white woman and a white woman standing up and basically falsely crying rape on the stand, it becoming this entire, and this is like a total intersectionality moment. Like that yeah. it was like, and they didn't address it at all. Like they did, yeah. it was like, come the, 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 sh like the, like the play was coming out in the midst of both Black Lives Matters and me too and here you have this insane dilemma that this presents yeah of like how are we supposed to like buy the fact that it's like a, the me too movement and believe all women but then we're just watching a play in which a woman actively lies about her rape and it's like at, and this like, is to we, we now know yeah. that that was also the case um in the murder of emmett till that the woman yes. lied about that assault and came out about that too i believe tim tyson but there's a number of histories where that is the case, where where we have a, a, a misallegation for whatever reason. I mean, that's in Ida B. Wells' reportings on lynching and, and mis, mis, uh, false accusation um, way back. I, I, I like use the To Kill a Mockingbird example just because like, it's actually less politically active than any of them. like, and because I like, I don't know, but there's, there's something that the, about it, the, the fiction of it, but like, the fact that you're revi we're revisiting it with with such like we're, we're reliving it like yeah. without like the nuance like wild real world events like Emmett Till happen is like I guess what I'm kind of a little bit perplexed by. Yeah, that things, that, things that didn't need to be addressed in context when that book came out, of course, are needing to be addressed in context now. I mean, yeah. We, we, we I mean, we don't we don't we don't really know that that these social movements haven't ameliorated the situation. Uh, that is, 
hopefully people are scared of getting me tooed if they act in wrongful ways. Um, and so therefore time will tell, will, will it not? I mean, well, I think Me Too is mostly about workplace sexual harassment, and perhaps that's helping part of it. But I think that our, our, our analytic in the field guide and in this conversation is about the broad problem of gender violence and how that, you know, so I think. Um, yeah, I, I right. So so in terms of gender violence. Gabby Petito, right? And I think that like um, the, we, yeah. I'm sorry, do we know? I mean, I, I'm sure you know, I don't know. Um, do we know about the rates of domestic violence over the last, let's say, 30 years, whether they've fallen or not, or whether they've fallen faster than the fall in violent crime? I believe that they have not fallen, she argues in this piece. Um, and one of the interesting things about the Rebecca Solnit essay is that she has a little a frontispiece that's like, I have revised this essay X number of times um, around X number of violent events against women. But I'd have to go, I'd have to let her answer specifically. Oblio 23, the floor is 23 times yours. <laughs> I made me choke. Um, I was just interested in your thoughts on the civil right, or the civil lawsuit against the Unite the Right people. Yeah. So um, this is Science Kessler. This is the lawsuit in Charlottesville that started jury selection yesterday or two days ago. I'm losing track. Um, in the the United the Right rally in 2017, um, I'm very. I'll be watching on Tinder hooks. Um, it strikes me that there are a ton of trials right now that are litigating various parts of this problem. Um, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Kenosha started this week. Jury selection and the Arbery trial in Georgia also started a jury selection all the same week, which is amazing that we're having all this happen at the same time. Um, I will say in general, civil trials have been incredibly effective at dealing with white power organizing, um, because they provided opportunities to do things like stop people from associating, um, harm fundraising apparatuses, they've shut down newsletters, they've even done things like seize the group membership headquarters. Um, while the criminal trials have typically had issue um, is the short answer to a long answer. Um, so I'll be, I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm always watching to see all of these things, um, but I, I'm very interested to see what happens in Charlottesville. It's very important. Um, and I think um, were it to fail, that would be a very, that would bode very badly for, I think it would, would incite additional far right activity. Charles T, the floor is yours. So I guess my question is, and this is a kind of a broad question, how have white supremacists reacted to January 6th? And how should should January, and I guess should January 6th be understood as a white supremacist incident in the sense of it was a fairly broad swath of people who participated, some of whom were objectively not white, but was it, you know, how is it best understood, I guess is my question. Yeah, I think the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, I think January 6th is, um, oh shoot, I'm sorry. I have to run to another event in two minutes. Um, I Finish this question and, and, <laughs> and off you go. And off I go. Um, I, 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 will take, I will take over in okay. your name. <laughs> <laughs> I think it represents the intersection of organized white power violence 
with a QAnon uh, activity that we don't understand as well yet, but that sort of rehashes conspiracy theories that we're all familiar with from earlier in the 20th century with the Trump base. But what we know is that the white power movement and militant right, the organized factions immediately reached into those mainstream Trump supporter groups on social media to recruit. And we also know that a lot of people experienced powerful instant radicalization on that day through the shared experience of the attack. Um, and we know, um, according to Robert Pape, my colleague at University of Chicago, he did a poll that found that 47 million people think that Biden is falsely elected and that Trump is the real president. And 21 million said that they would support the use of force to return Trump to office. So those are not fringe group numbers anymore. I think this is a mainstream issue. Yeah. Okay. And with that, I will run away. Thank You're you. Thank you so face. much. Great to Milena, see you. Bye. Uh, so great. before we sign off, um, Joel the Nudge um, has a question uh, that I think is actually better directed to uh, Kate <laughs> and Scott than to Kathleen anyway. Uh, it may be a kind of ideal Scott question. And uh, and so I thought uh, uh, since Kathleen is gone, Joel, why don't you... Uh, uh, pose your question to Scott and Kate. Uh, yeah, so one of the things that's been in the news a lot and you hear a lot kind of bantied about is the critical race theory. And it seems like there's a lot of poor definitions out there. I was curious if you all had a good running definition that you like and would you be willing to kind of share it so that, you know, as we're thinking about these things, it's grounded in something that's reasonably well considered. Does that make sense? Great. So uh, I, I, this feels like a Scott kind of question, but I mean, uh, I could take a, I could take a, a, a go at it, but I think that Scott probably has much, has a much, has been in the academy longer and just has like a better understanding yeah. history of like critical legal studies and critical race theory. Oh, I, so um, I, so obviously it's lots of things that go under critical race theory are dissimilar from one another in many, many important ways. But what I think of and what I associate with like a, a kind of a core commitment or angle or perspective on, of critical race theory is that it tries to unearth, uncover kind of hidden um, um, racial uh, ideologies underneath seemingly neutral categories. Yes. Okay, so it's not yes. different from like everything that Kathleen's talking about today. Right, exactly. Exactly. So you think that these things are neutral and are um, not discriminatory, but in fact, in a in application or in conception or understood within the social context or understood how it plays out in the market or however way you want to put it, it's in fact undergirding, it's, 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 uh, it's grounded by and or perpetuates a racist system. So I will just say the history of it being one that started in the 60s and 70s following the critical legal studies movement, which was kind of also, is it, CLS also kind of legal realism or those like jump? Yeah, so CLS followed 
followed right. legal realism. It's it, a kind of like the, the CLS people. That, so Kate, of course, you're right not to jump in here, but it's exactly analogous. So the CLS people were like the Marxists who said, actually, capitalism that looks like it looks like formal justice. In fact, it's really furthering capital. Right. It's also right. This whole thing about economic efficiency and all this stuff or property rights. This is all furthering um, the owners of capital against labor. And so critical race theorists kind of pick that up and say, oh, well, whether in addition to or in lieu of what the, it's also a very powerful force, even more powerful force, who's racial ideology. The way that I teach this as an example, like you wouldn't imagine it in like, say, a black letter law class like property, as I teach a case called Johnson v. McIntosh, which is from the early, like, I think it's one of the first. Um, yeah, it's like one of the very early cases of basically Native Americans had sold land to a group of people, like a group of settlers, the settler, like then that land had been called, like had been claimed by the U.S. government the people who had been on the land and said that they owned it like claimed against the u.s government hey you can't just like take our land we've been here developed and all this stuff and simultaneously like basically the the the, the decision ended up being routed in the idea that like well you didn't discuss like the people who, you discovered the land so you have rights to it but they didn't have rights to sell it to you because they don't count as discoverers and they don't count as discovering and the idea of discovering seems like a neutral time-based or like circumstance-based but like really it's a meaningless concept that is really all about privileging certain types of expectations of like can you put a flag in it can you like can you shoot other people off your land with guns type of thing do you have these types of constructs of like exclusion that are going to make it seem like in a way that we now would associate with discovery or something and so the idea of that being that like there are racial elements of dominance and col colonialism built into that that seem as if they are just like, oh, well, the court like kind of like puts them aside. It's just like, well, it was discovered when white people got there, even though other people were totally there beforehand. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, I think that that's like a good example of like looking at something that is like a very tropish like kind of story that you hear and then kind of looking at it from a different perspective that like that's what CRT tries to bring. But the other thing that people in the current debate such as it is about CRT, which is uh, a very generous noun to use to describe what's going on about CRT, is that yes. a CRT is one wing of a larger set of uh, what are sometimes called the crits, um, you know, the, the critical legal studies movements, which are multiple and uh, which are not all of a same. So Richard Posner, the sort of one of the godfathers of the law and economics movement, describes law and economics as broadly speaking, closely akin to the critical legal studies movement in that it, it denies that the law, capital T, capital L, has a great deal of philosophical integrity of its own and insists that there are kind of other forces that are actually, um, in, in, in the case of um, law and economics, sort of economic efficiency that are actually guiding the direction. 
And so, like, the, the idea that you sort of take out of the critical legal studies world this one strain that asks questions about the role of race underlying the law is... I mean, look, CRT has its excesses like all legal studies movements do. Um, it's a very silly thing to do, except that it's not silly at all because it's not actually about CRT and none of this discussion is actually about the merits of CRT. It's what, it, what it's mm -hmm. actually about is, uh, you know, asserting a certain cultural dominance over... Uh, over school boards by way of by way of uh, you know yelling about masks and about teaching kids anything that involves uh, you know a, a kind of inquisitorial attitude about American history vis-a-vis -vis race. Yeah. And, and CRT is just the name that is being given to that project. Just, just to follow up exactly on what you said, the whole that critical, the word that that critical is playing there is it's kind of um, um, playing the role of what they used to call the hermeneutics of suspicion. That is that you really you don't take something at face value. What you Scott, really you just see got it. the word hermeneutics into in lieu of fun, which uh, <laughs> well, I I've been waiting for this moment for 537 episodes. <laughs> 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 537 episodes without the word hermeneutics ever appearing Ring. in this. Okay. And you have but, now. But like, let him it finish up. a sentence, Ben. Okay. <laughs> so, but it's, basically, what it is is to be suspicious about like the institutions of society. So, we you know, uh, uh, democracy and voting and the market and all these things are being re are being reinterpreted as being something less wonderful than they claim to be. And so different critical schools think of it in different terms, but they all have in common the sense that there's a there's a there are kind of bad things underlying American institutions. I just want to say that I had a conversation this summer that just like blew my mind with a very close relative that was just kind of like, I just don't understand why the left has to call these things critical race theory. It oh. just, why do they have to say critical? Well, that just makes it sound so negative from the beginning. And I just was like, blame, 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 <laughs> blame Immanuel Kant, you know, yeah, it, it, it all, comes, all comes from his, you know, Fucking, excuse me, ban <laughs> the critique of pure reason. Man, have you ever read that thing? That is hard going. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's just got too many pages for me. Um, <laughs> uh, and they're, and, they're, and he, even when they're not in German, they still read <laughs> like they're in German. Um, right. uh, well, we are going to replace the word critical in critical race theory with cheerful. Uh, and that should solve the entire problem. It's going to be cheerful race uh, legal uh, theory. Uh, uh, and it's going to solve the whole problem. Fox News will be mollified. Kate's family will be like, oh, there's no, there's no problem then. It's uh, We've gotten rid of the word critical. Uh, the, the, the solution is at hand. We will be back tomorrow. Um, uh, who's, who do we have tomorrow? I think, Jill. We, uh, 
Oh, we have Jill Filipovich. I'm excited about this because the other day, and so this is your homework, people. Um, I watched an amazing documentary uh, called uh, Lula Rich. It's on Netflix. And it is the story of a multi-level marketing scheme run by two total sociopaths. Um, and the guest commentator throughout the whole thing is one Jill Filipovich. Um, and uh, Jill is has Great. studied Lula Rowe, the MLM in question. Um, she has uh, uh, developed a very interesting set of thoughts about why this MLM was so effective at getting thousands, tens of thousands, like a hundred thousand stay-at-home moms around the country to go insane selling leggings. Um, and um, the story is completely deranged um, and making billions of dollars for these sociopathic people who ran it. Uh, and she's developed a lot of interesting thoughts about it. And I thought uh, we should... Um, uh, just have Jill on to talk about LuLaRoe, um, multi-level marketing schemes in general, and why they have such appeal to uh, 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 vulnerable stay-at-home moms who are not necessarily feeling so great about themselves. Um, and uh, I think it's like a really interesting subject, and I thought Jill's thoughts on it were uh, really, really compelling, so I asked her to come on and have a LuLaRoe conversation. So that'll be tomorrow, 22 hours and 52 minutes from now. And until then, Scott? Well, we can't have critical race theory anymore, but we can have wool shirts and we cheerful race theory. Cheerful race theory. Trademark. Let's get it on. Some, let's get it out there, people. Hashtag cheerful race theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah hashtag cheerful race theory. Yeah. It's totally happening. Like, See you guys.